October the 30th, 1988. You know, I got to tell you, this is the... Probably the most effective opening of any Halloween sequel, at least for me. The... The... I, I think the, uh, the the score, you know, the music that you're listening to in the background by uh, Alan... How do you pronounce this guy's name? Alan Haworth or Alan Haworth? I think it's just really effective and extremely well done. This is very moody and atmospheric. And by itself, I don't think that would be enough to put this introduction this kind of introductory sequence this kind of opening credit stuff i don't think that by itself would be enough to put everything over the top at least for me really the uh the the big issue what it comes down to is the just kind of spooky imagery that you're seeing i posted a little bit about this on the facebook group this just sort of empty stretches of land that we're seeing uh you know the the kind of decrepit-looking Halloween decorations and all that stuff really goes a long way towards setting the tone. And now we've shifted over to the ambulance as it's driving down the street in the pouring rain. It's nighttime. And here again, the issue is creating mood and atmosphere. And I just think it's, <clears throat> it, it's extremely well done. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a little bit of a repeat, and for that I apologize, but Halloween 4 really is my origin story with the Halloween series. This was the first of the Halloween movies that I ever saw on October the 31st, 1989, when this uh, debuted on uh, broadcast TV, basically about a year after it came out in the theaters. And I didn't, I mean, I'd heard of Michael Myers, I'd heard of the Halloween movies and all that, because it was the 80s, and so, you know, slashers and whatnot were impossible to escape from. I'm going to pick that up, actually, in just a sec. I really love this, this uh, character actor that we're seeing here, this, um, this uh, security guard. I even got his name written down here. So, yeah, Raymond O'Connor. He plays uh, the uh, security guard, and... I don't know what it is about this guy. He's just creepy as fuck. I mean, it's just this... He's just about the kind of guy that you would expect to find working in a sanitarium like this. Which is to say, Ridgemont uh, Federal Sanitarium. You know, uh, the kind of person who would uh, take a job there. You know, you almost kind of have to wonder, you know, how crazy are they really? And Raymond O'Connor kind of straddles this sort of interesting middle ground between... This kind of earnest, uh, good faith sort of security guard kind of archetype, and this kind of wide-eyed, just weird, creepy dude that, in a weird kind of way, maybe gets off on being surrounded by all of this uh, insanity, uh, insanity and moon battery and all this stuff. You know, it's. Um, it's. I guess this is the kind of guy that, or probably the best kind of guy that you could find to work in a sanitarium like this and when you think about it this is kind of a thankless job that he has because he's got to lay down a lot of exposition outline the events of the first two movies in very quick kind of sketchy form and then uh, basically from there we kind of have to shift gears and, and start getting into a little bit of the meat and potatoes of Michael Myers's current disposition and overall I think he does the job really well you know this is uh, 
like I say, I mean, it's a thankless job that he has, but he he does it with what looks to be complete effortless grace, you know. <clears throat> so to circle back though to what I was saying a minute ago, the my gateway into the the Halloween series, not counting Halloween three, which technically I saw before Halloween four. That's my memory of it anyway. But let's be real. That's not I, Halloween three is not a Halloween movie in I'd the strict Dr. God when Michael Myers's Michael hand Myers just kind of dangles like that. It just falls and hangs limply like that. He's showing no signs of life whatsoever, and yet for some reason that really creeped nine-year-old Magnus. That just creeped me the hell out. So anyway, but this movie was really, like I say, <clears throat> my introduction into the Halloween movie series. And I, looking back at it, I think this was an extremely good introduction to have. Oh, we're about to get the, the main music score here. Here we go. Yeah. This is actually the first time that we hear uh, the, the famous John Carpenter piano theme uh, for this series. And I, to kind of circle back to uh, the music for a minute, I really appreciate how Alan Howarth, uh, he basically showed some restraint in not diving headfirst into that, you know, at the beginning of the movie with the opening credit sequence. I think, you know, holding back on that and waiting for it was definitely the way to go. But anyway, so the, like I say, the uh, introduction I had for the Halloween series was this film. And I really do think that was probably the best way for nine-year-old Magnus to be introduced to the Halloween movies. Just because the protagonist of this movie, which is to say Jamie Lloyd, played by Danielle Harris, she and I were just about the same age. And so for whatever reason, it was that extra bit easier for me to relate to her character and I guess connect to her emotionally because of the fact that we were just about the same age. And, you know, I think I've even said this in the past, but just there was there was something about Danielle Harris, you know, when she's in this movie and the fact that she and I were the same age. I got the idea that if she and I, you know, under other circumstances, like if we'd been in class together at school or something like that, I might have had a crush on her, you know. And so somebody like that, that I can connect to emotionally so easily being the protagonist of the movie gave me entree into the movie that I might not. And here she is right now staring out the window gave me entree into the movie that I might not have otherwise, you know? And so, whereas I'd seen a lot of Friday the 13th movies, and I guess I enjoyed them when I was a kid, but I didn't really connect to them. Or I'd seen a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street movies when I was a kid and enjoyed them, but didn't really connect to them. I saw this movie, Halloween 4, when I was a kid, enjoyed it, but also connected with it by virtue of the fact that Danielle Harris is, the, like I say, the uh, protagonist of the movie, or at least for most of the movie, and she was just easy for me to... I guess what I'm trying to say is it was easy for me to see myself in her, you know? And it doesn't really hurt that she was... that she really is a good actress. I mean, a lot of child actors, it, it really comes down to how cute can they be, and she doesn't have a whole lot of cute scenes in this movie. She gives what I think, anyway, is a pretty real and effective performance. You know, this is something that 
somebody twice her age or even three times her age. It's a performance that somebody who's just that much older than her would still be proud of. And she, I don't know, I just, I, I think she's easily in the top 10 uh, best child actors, at least that I've ever seen. And so, I don't know, it's just, she 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 does the job really well. And in this sequence that we're watching here, she's been put back to bed. She's wandering around her bedroom. She's suffering from insomnia, which considering some of the bullshit that she's been through, that's like the least of all the side effects that she could be having right now. And number one, what this is meant to set up for her is the fact that, yes, her her mother, Lori Strode, is dead and has been for almost a year now. And just kind of get that that bit of continuity trivia out of the way, because obviously Jamie Lee Curtis would not appear in this movie, except for here as a as a picture, but set up how insecure Jamie still is and her setup in her life, things that are happening in her world. And also I think establish the fact that she has these sort of uh, vivid, I can't say waking dreams or anything like that, but she does have perhaps a bit of a, of an active imagination because we just saw a little flash of Michael Myers in her room, which we know can't be true. This cannot be the real Michael Myers, number one, because he he's only just escaped from the sanitarium, number two. He's nowhere near uh, Haddonfield, at least yet. Number three, he doesn't have his trademark uh, gray coveralls yet. And number four, he doesn't have the mask yet. And yet what Jamie thinks she's seeing is Myers in his... Like I say, in his traditional gray coveralls and his trademark mask, and he doesn't have those things in this movie yet. And so we're I don't think we're supposed to believe that this is literally Michael Myers in her room. Instead, this is kind of a waking dream that she's having. She's got a very active imagination, as children tend to have, you know, and I can't I didn't really go through any kind of great traumatic experience when I was a kid, so I can't really say for sure, but if somebody who is in a position to speak to this authoritatively were to tell me that it's easy for somebody who's as traumatized and lonely as Jamie is for them to have just such a vivid imagination that this is the shit that that Jamie would be imagining right now. She's not just afraid of the dark in a kind of abstract sense. She's specifically afraid of the dark and afraid of Michael Myers. If somebody were to tell me that that's a normal thing for a child her age to experience, I tend to believe it, you know? And it's it, it just kind of goes to reinforce this kind of strange sort of family dynamic that's going on with uh, the uh, Carruthers family that they've that they've agreed to to be a, a foster family for for uh, Jamie, and it's it's just a powerful way of expressing what exactly their status quo is, and honestly, really how fragile that status quo is from one moment to the next, just because. I think from Jamie's standpoint, you know, she's not being accepted really anywhere. And we'll see more of that in just a little while. But, uh, you know, 
it's hard, I would imagine, for Jamie not to feel like a burden. So, you know, those dynamics are going on, especially at the beginning of the movie as we watch the Carruthers family get ready for school, get ready for work. And because of the fact that this is film, of course, they're getting ready for school and they're getting ready for work. And it's sunshiny, bright outside, even though, let's face it, when we're getting ready for school and getting ready for work, it ain't sunshiny, bright outside. The sun hasn't even fucking thought about coming up yet. But um, anyway, teenager bullshit is what's is uh, kind of the name of the game here. Babysitter calls out, and so that kind of leaves Rachel in the uh, position of having to babysit for Jamie, and so, you know, goings on with that. Again, speaking to uh, Jamie's insecurities that are happening in this family. One of the things, though, that I think this movie does really well is these characters really are, by horror movie standards, they they actually are really well-developed. You know, Rachel... She's not a stock character. She has goals of her own. She has an agenda of her own. She has uh, basically things that she wants to achieve, which, let's face it, Jamie is kind of standing in in the way of. And so she's not just the, the loving, dutiful foster sister. She's somebody who sometimes says the wrong thing at the wrong time. Or she, you know, her life doesn't revolve completely around Jamie she has boyfriends, she goes out on dates, she goes to school, she earns grades. You know, she has a history of her own. She has a life of her own. She has basically uh, a trajectory that her life is taking her in, and so do her parents. And I guess what I'm trying to say is they're they're not stock cannon, uh, cannon fodder. But one of the things that I think Rachel has to kind of get her head around is the fact that Jamie is not a conventional child, you know, where your average kid, probably the most that that's on their mind any given Halloween is going trick or treating. That's not necessarily Jamie's agenda. You know, maybe she wants to go get ice cream or something like that. But going out trick or treating or something like that, you know, it's it's I, I can understand where she'd be reluctant to do that, especially considering her family's history with Halloween as a holiday. And so here we we get our first look at uh, Dr. Sam Loomis uh, in this film. And guys, Halloween 4 is the movie where Sam Loomis has officially lost his shit. In a lot of ways, Loomis has spent the last 10 years waiting for Michael Myers to die. So I think so that he, Loomis can finally die. His life's mission for the last 25 years has been basically containing the evil of Michael Myers. And so what we see in this movie is a Loomis who is at the end of his rope because shooting Michael hasn't worked and blowing the motherfucker up hasn't worked. And so maybe the best that we could hope for was just locking him up in a sanitarium for the rest of his life, except now that hasn't worked. And so what we see here is a Loomis who I think is a lot more keyed up than the Loomis we saw in the original. I mean, in the original, yeah, there were times when Loomis lost his temper, you know, it's the ultimate evil, you know, and all that stuff. But that was more, I guess, verging on panic. What we're seeing here in Halloween 4 is Loomis really verging on on uh, desperation. You know, this is a guy that has 
he he's basically I don't want to say failed, but he's he hasn't been completely successful in all the stuff that he's wanted to do vis-a-vis Michael Myers and keeping him away from innocent people. And so Michael Myers has been transferred. Oops, the ambulance crashed. And so Loomis instantly knows what that means. He goes out to the scene of the crash, not so much to learn anything so much as uh, confirm what he what he already knows to be true. Michael Myers has escaped and he's on the loose once again. I kind of like this bit of business here where Loomis uh, wanders through this lake or whatever the hell this thing is and he's got his cane with him and it's like what exactly is that cane doing to support him at this point? Because the the mud underneath all that water, there's no way it's going to be strong enough to support the weight of Loomis and his cane and all that. So I was like, but you know, he's got the cane and he's got to go out there. It's, it's just kind of, it's kind of weird. And here it is. He's desperate. You know, he's, but at the same time, a bit resigned to his fate. He knows exactly what this means. And from his standpoint, oh, this is just a good line he's about to give to you. You're talking about him as if he were a human being. That part of him died years ago. Now where are you going? Haddonfield. It's a four-hour drive. You can reach me through the local police. If you don't find him in four hours, I'm sure I will. That's just a good line. I, I, I like that. And so here we are at this mechanic shop slash gas station slash convenience store slash whatever the hell this is supposed to be, diner or whatever. And this is really not the first kill of the movie, obviously, because... Myers killed the uh, ambulance full of medical personnel. But now this is, I guess, this is not a kill that's a means to an end. This is, as much as anything, I mean, yeah, you know, Michael Myers wants the mechanics coveralls because they're gray and, and everything and they're, they're, they're coveralls. And so, of course, he wants them because that's kind of his thing. But I do think that <clears throat> this this murder and then the ones going forward, this is basically the type of murder where Myers is getting a little bit of his jollies out of, you know, he's, he's not doing this for no reason. He actually does have an agenda in doing this, which is whatever sick pleasure he gets out of taking human life. And I think in this moment, Michael Myers knows that Loomis is here. You know, he knows that I guess put it down to a quirk of fate or the fact that this is maybe the only gas station reasonably close to the sanitarium. So, of course, Loomis and Myers would end up at the same gas station. I guess that makes sense. But nevertheless, this is uh, in some way or another kind of fortuitous for Michael Myers, perhaps. But at the same time, I think it's also kind of fortuitous for for Loomis in, in as much as he didn't necessarily go into this thing expecting to fall ass backwards into an encounter with Michael Myers and yet that is what's about to happen here but first yep 
There's the first murder victim. And so Loomis now knows what he's up against. He knows that at the very least, Michael Myers has been here. And so it's time now to sound the alarm, call the police, and let's see if we can... There may still be time to apprehend Michael Myers. And this, to me, is one of the best scenes in the movie. There are some good ones, but this, to me, is one of the best because it's... We're about to get this... Well, first, he's got to see the smashed telephone and then the destroyed payphone, but Loomis is about to have one of the few, I guess, kind of personal and sort of intimate encounters that he has with uh, Myers in any of the movies. He turns around, he senses Myers' presence, and there it is. Michael? Why now? You waited ten years. I knew this day would come. Don't go to Haddonfield. If you want another victim, take me. But leave those people in peace. Please. Michael. God damn you. I just like that. You know, he gives Michael Myers one, basically a chance to stop this whole thing right now. You know, uh, basically put a stop to this insanity and this madness and this murder. Look, if all it's going to take to end the blood for you is taking one more victim, I'm here. Take me. And I think it's very telling that Myers didn't do it. That Myers didn't take him up on his offer. He didn't kill Loomis. Even if it was just to uh, go back on his word later and, and then uh, drive to Haddonfield anyway after killing Loomis, he didn't, he didn't go for it, you know? And I think that kind of says a lot about uh, a, a lot about Michael Myers and a lot about Loomis. And speaking of saying a lot, you know, what we're, what we're seeing here is this is basically what, uh, uh, Jamie's, Jamie's high, not high school, but Jamie's school life is like that. She gets, uh, routinely picked on and harassed and tormented and, and, and all of that by her, uh, her, uh, classmates you know, at first she puts on kind of a brave face about it, but ultimately that's not enough. You know, they they actually chase her out of the school, tormenting her. And this is one of those things in the movie that you either buy into or you don't, all right? That the authorities, knowing full well that Michael Myers is out there, knowing full well Jamie's history... And knowing full well that this is known, this is generally understood all over town, that uh, uh, Jamie's uncle is Michael Myers, um, they're still going to leave her in Haddonfield, you know, knowing all of that. And if that doesn't work for you, 
I, I mean, honestly, what am I supposed to tell you? You know, but I, I can't really tell you that you're wrong. But to, it's just it's one of those things that you kind of have to buy into in order to. I guess in order to uh, get into the movie, you know, because if that doesn't work for you, basically nothing else that happens in this movie is going to work for you either. So basically you've really got no choice except to kind of roll with it. And so for me being as really none of the sequels are, are part of Canon, the Halloween Canon begins with the first frame of the first movie. And then the Halloween Canon ends with the final frame of the first movie. And that anything that happens after that is, Maybe it's an interesting thought experiment, or maybe it's uh, an alternate universe or something like that, but it's not actually part of the Halloween canon. It's not difficult for me to b to buy into this stuff. Now, I never really liked the idea of Michael Myers being Laurie Strode's brother anyway. <clears throat> but the the main struggles and conflicts of Halloween four are kind of predicated on that. And since none of the shit's canon to me to begin with anyway, it's not a big deal, but kind of shifting gears a bit. We catch up with Brady, which is to say Rachel's would be boyfriend, Brady and his friends hanging around this uh, costume shop or whatever the hell this thing's supposed to be. And this is just a supremely eighties scene in this movie where just these guys, they are trying to make themselves out to be just a bunch of big shots and ladies, men, or at least this guy is, you know, this, you know, Fabio's little brother here. And maybe he's not as slick as he thinks he is because she instantly shoots him down. And I just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just something about that is just so quintessentially 80s to me. I just, I just like it, you know. But nevertheless, Jamie has changed her mind. She does want to go trick-or-treating after all. And I can't help thinking that for her, what she's really doing here is taking a dare, you know. Uh, I can't even say her friends, but these fucking assholes that she goes to school with. Basically, they've called her out, you know. And so what you realize is this is the shit that she was really trying to avoid by uh, not going trick-or-treating. And so what she's done is she's basically decided, you know what, fuck all you guys, I'm going for it. You know, you, you motherfuckers, you know, I'm going to go ahead and go, go trick or treating. And she's sort of calling their bluff. And the, if you look in the background here of this shot, well, we just cut, but in the background of that shot, we were just looking at, you know, you see the, uh, Michael Myers mask and people make a big deal out of that, but you know, I don't know. I don't get it. One of the things that I do like about this costume shop in general is that this isn't cosplay. You know, these are basically, for lack of a better way to put it, like actual Halloween costumes. They're not superhero costumes or anything like that. Halloween is, I don't want to sound too much like an old fart, but it's like Halloween as a holiday has kind of become an excuse for grownups to put on superhero clothes and uh, or costumes, I should say, put on superhero outfits and run around like a bunch of morons. And that's really not the purpose of Halloween. It is supposed to be scary. It is supposed to be kind of spooky. You know, there are supposed to be like monster masks and all these other, these other things that you're supposed to be wearing. And in a weird kind of way, I mean, I don't want to get too curmudgeonly, I guess, about 
you know, Christmas, but like Christmas has become something very much different from what it, what it was originally supposed to be like as a holiday, you know, the consumerism and all that. And Halloween, I think, has, has been arguably mutilated even worse in that the I guess the the horror aspect of it, the fear, the scariness of it all that has basically been supplanted by the, I don't know, like the superhero-fication of the holiday. And here we have Jamie having her first, I think this is, a, this is an authentic encounter now with uh, Michael Myers. This is not a waking dream. This isn't Jamie's imagination running away with her. This you know, Michael Myers really was in there with her and she really did see him. And this is actually one of the things about Michael Myers that I, that I kind of like is that he plays with his food a little bit. You know, you see him in the mirror reflection there. He plays with his food a little bit, you know, especially when it comes to his, uh, his, uh, female victims, you know, it's not enough that he just swoops in there and knifes somebody to death. He, uh, he, he he sort of stalks them for a little while. He scares them a little bit. He makes it very clear to them that they're on his shit list. You know, whereas his male victims, he just kills them. Oh, God, this is just such a jerk thing to do. This uh, group of teenagers pull over and they pretend like they're going to give Loomis a ride. But then at the last minute, they 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 just zoom off. And that is just such a fucking dick thing to do to somebody. I mean, look. Pick up a hitchhiker or don't pick up a hitchhiker, you know? But don't fuck with people like that. That is just mean. But here we get Loomis catching a ride, and I've already forgotten this character's name. He's about to say his name. But Loomis getting a ride with the crazy preacher guy. He's getting in the truck right now. Jackson P. Sayer. Yeah, that's the guy. All right. So I just kind of like this moment that, you know, Jackson isn't a, a major part of this movie. He's just this scenery chewing cameo appearance, this weird guy that Loomis bumps into and offers him a ride. But I do kind of like the idea that, you know, Loomis is not the only guy out there who's crusading against evil. Now, I think Jackson is doing it a little bit more of an abstract sort of form than Loomis is, but they're in a weird kind of way, they're both on the same quest. Wow, I guess this movie was shot before open container laws were a thing. Look at that. I just kind of like this, you know, <laughs> they're just uh, two peas in a pod. They're driving down the road in this wacko's uh, truck. They're uh, they're drinking what looks like some kind of cheap liquor or something like that. And in a weird kind of way, this is Loomis meeting an actual peer in a strange kind of way. And 
I don't know. I just dig it. So, Halloween 4 is now officially in full swing. All of the characters are either in place or they're getting to be in place. <clears throat> These little hell-raising teenagers are running all over the place in Haddonfield. Just causing mayhem and just having all the kind of... I don't know, just kind of innocent Halloween fun that American children growing up in the 80s should have. And I just kind of dig that. You know, the one of the things this movie does well, just to kind of diverge for a second, is you get kind of Americana little bits like that. Uh, you know, these kids that are running around town square, I guess, uh, toilet papering trees and all that. And like I say, just having all the kind of good, clean fun that American children in the 80s should be having on Halloween. Over and against these POV shots of Michael Myers uh, spying on the Carruthers household and watching uh, watching Rachel as she's uh, calling. Uh, uh, honestly, I forget who she's calling, but she's. Yeah, she's calling or yeah, she's calling uh, basically uh, Brady's parents and trying to talk to her boyfriend and all that, you know, which again, that's what American girls in the 1980s should be doing, you know, is calling their boyfriends and all that. And it's intermixed with these POV shots of Rachel and really the whole family being stalked by Michael Myers. And I just dig that, you know, that is, to me, that's, that's what the original Halloween was. It, it It's mixing this, this sort of, uh, like tradition, like I say, sort of traditional Americana with this kind of new, or at the time, what was kind of a new breed of slasher uh, film and slasher film villain. And so the girls leave home. Michael Myers goes upstairs. I think as much as anything to, he wants to confirm the kill first. He wants to make sure that he's on the right track. And he goes through Jamie's little memorabilia box finds pictures of Lori, and I think we're supposed to infer this right here is a picture of Myers himself from that famous night when he killed Judith. And all in all, this is basically Myers trying to make sure that he's got the right person. It's not enough that he kills somebody, I don't think. He wants to kill the right person. And I think that kind of says something, especially about Myers in the way that he's presented in this film, that they're... There is this fine line being walked of humanity that that Michael Myers has. Certainly, he's in the shape of a uh, of a man, but his 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 methods and his ability to survive and all these things they seem like they might be of some kind of supernatural origin or at least paranormal origin. And so this again is kind of blurring the lines. Now in giving Myers kind of a human motive, which, as a general rule of thumb, I oppose doing. Oh, and I just dig this scene. has been locked up since before she was born. He's never laid eyes on her. Six bodies, Sheriff! That's what I've seen between here and Ridgemont! A filling station in flames! I tell you, Michael Myers is here in this town! He's here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way. What I like about this is how 
The sheriff, he's a little bit more willing to hear Loomis out in this movie than the sheriff from the first Halloween movie was. I got the idea that the sheriff in the first Halloween movie, he was basically indulging Loomis somewhat, but he wasn't necessarily prepared to throw up roadblocks and all that kind of shit right away. Whereas this sheriff, he's got the benefit of experience on his side. He remembers what happened 10 years ago. And so if there's a chance that Michael Myers might be on the loose again and he's hunting for his niece, which is to say Jamie, this sheriff isn't gonna gonna take, he's not gonna take the chance. So he and Loomis basically decide, you know what, fuck this, we're gonna uh, basically announce a town-wide curfew, we're gonna find this girl and instantly put her in protective custody. He's basically taking the initiative straight away that this is something that he needs to take seriously. And that just works for me. And again, we're kind of mixing the 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 uh, traditional Americana of families going trick-or-treating together over and against, let's face it, a killer on the loose. So at the police station, it comes out, yes, a, a, in fact, a killer is on the loose. And that's immediately followed by this kind of wholesome scene of people trick-or-treating. And now what we see is Myers lurking around the corner. And this, again, this either works for you or it doesn't. But uh, Jamie bumps into some, I can't say friends, but these people she knows from school, they invite her to go trick-or-treating with them. And Jamie instantly puts aside her, her just horrible day at school earlier. And uh, not necessarily that all is forgiven, but she is willing to give them a chance. She... She throws in with with these kids and decides she's going to follow them around and go trick-or-treating with them. As all that's going on, Rachel basically has this conflict here with Brady where it comes out that he was cheating on her. And this is an opportune thing for Michael Myers, who's watching all of this. He sees now that Jamie has been separated from, from Rachel. And this, you know... They have to be separated from each other, okay? The script needs for that to happen. But Rachel's reasons for being separated from Jamie, I think, are successful, you know? She's basically been let down by this guy who's her boyfriend, but not really her boyfriend, but is kind of her boyfriend. And so they kind of have it out with each other there in front of the, the sheriff's house. And it's it lasts just long enough for Rachel to lose track of Jamie and that's what the script needs to happen. But it's a very believable thing that that Rachel would allow it to happen for those reasons. Not that she'd allow it to happen for just any reason, but this is a personal thing for her. And here we get into one of my absolute favorite scenes of this whole movie, right here in the bar. Gotta take one last swig of beer before we hit the road.
I just like this. You know, these this big gang of liquored up rednecks, and they're going to hit the road. They're going to find out what's going on in town. Why is it that a curfew is being put up? What's going on at the police department? Why is nobody answering? They got questions, and damn it, they're going to find answers. And this is one of those situations that would probably only, <clears throat> that can only really happen in the 80s when nobody had a cell phone. And so, you know, what do you do? And the thing about this that, that really plays for me is how everybody involved has a, has a pretty realistic agenda for doing what they're doing. Because when it comes to gun owners, and I'm not trying to denigrate gun ownership or, or anything like that. I own guns myself. But there's a type of gun owner out there, this kind of white knight type who sees it as his... Oh, and the dog died too. This is one of the few movies where the dog actually gets it. But uh, anyway, I'm not trying to denigrate gun owners or anything, but there is a type of gun owner who kind of sees himself as a kind of citizen law enforcement type where he views it as sort of part of his social contract to protect society and... I could picture this type of uh, of uh, gun owners saying, you know what? Hey, guys, we need to roll out. We need to figure out what's going on here. We got a lot of questions. We need some answers. Let's hit the road. You know, and so armed to the teeth, really, they'll, they'll hit the road and go looking for answers. And here in the power station, again, what we're seeing here is Michael Myers having a plan. All right, he's already accidentally uh, knocked down long-distance phone lines, or it may have been an accident. I mean, who knows? But now that he's confirmed the kill, now that he knows that uh, his niece, uh, Jamie, does reside in Haddonfield, and he knows who she is, he knows what she looks like, he knows where to find her, now he's going to take out uh, the power grid all across town, you know? And that, again, it, it speaks to the fact that He's not necessarily a, a, a random psychopathic slasher. He's got an agenda, and he's going to bring it about in the most effective way that he can think of. And honestly, I could see where something like that might not work for some Halloween fans that they want Michael to be kind of a kind of a random sort of slasher that he goes around just killing people, and you know he just keeps going until he can't go on anymore. And I don't know. I just, I dig that. And I also dig just the, the pandemonium that's starting to spread across town. Now people are finding out that, Hey, there's a curfew in effect. We have to, we, we have to go find our kids and bring them home. And the panic on the streets that ensues before Michael Myers has even shown his mask to the, to the public. I just like that. You know, it's Haddonfield and the residents of Haddonfield. I think they would and should take that seriously. And now what we see is, Rachel, she's wandering around the streets of Haddonfield. She's looking for Jamie, can't find her. Meanwhile, um, as she's doing all of that, Jamie is wandering around trying to find her. And one of the things that's not really made clear here is how exactly Jamie got separated from her group of fellow trick-or-treaters and, you know, what's going on with that and whatever. That never really gets explained you know, if their parents picked uh, picked their children up, why wouldn't they pick uh, Jamie up too and give her a ride home? And it, it, I don't, I don't know. It just 
doesn't really get explained. So I guess you just have to kind of let that go. We cut back to Rachel and things are starting to get serious now. She can't find Jamie. But she does find something else. Now, at this moment, Jamie has no, she doesn't necessarily know that there's a curfew in effect in Haddonfield. She doesn't know that Michael Myers is on the loose, but she knows, I think, about the Strode family history. She's not going to take chances that this dark figure that she sees wandering around in the shadows, she's not going to take any chances that this could be Michael Myers. And so she makes a run for it. And... That just works for me on so fucking many levels. I love that. You know, she's she's not an idiot. You know, she's not a, a, a stock uh, slasher film sort of victim who is going to go out in the darkness to investigate a strange noise that she heard. You know, she she saw something that set off some alarm bells. And so she just she she makes a run for it. And so finally, Jamie and Rachel, they get reconnected. They've had their little thrill. Now Jamie, or rather Rachel, now Rachel has every reason in the world to want to wanna, uh, get the hell out of Dodge and go home. And the thing about this that I like is that the protagonists of this movie, they may not know the full story. They may not know necessarily everything that's going on. But they are in common cause with one another. They understand that they need to be on the same page with each other. They're cooperating right away instead of this arbitrary drama of people who are put in conflict with each other for no apparent reason. And I just I just like this. And I, and I also kind of buy the idea that there would be Michael Myers impersonators running around all over uh, Haddonfield that... It really is poor taste if you you know if you think about it where these people are impersonating Michael Myers because they think it's funny these teenagers and they as insensitive as it may be as callous as it may be I find it believable that they would do this. So anyway and it's also, let's face it, a, a nice little false positive, you know, not necessarily a jump scare, but it does kind of reinforce the mood that Myers is on the loose, which, if you need it, we're about to see it. Bam, right there. That is the real Michael Myers standing around in the street. He was that close to the good guys. And here we come back to the police station, and this place is a fucking bloodbath. Now, I don't have... You know, in its place, I don't have a whole lot of gripes and uh, quibbles and criticisms of this film. I really do enjoy it. But one of the things that I do kind of wish we could have seen is Michael Myers taking out this this entire police station. Because we know he did. These people, they've been knifed to death. They're dead. This place is covered in blood and all that stuff. And I kind of would have... Uh, I kind of would have wanted to see Michael Myers do this, you know, because we, 
I, I don't think there are very many redeeming elements of Halloween 6, the curse of Michael Myers, but one of them is that kind of cool moment in the theatrical cut of the movie where Michael Myers takes out, I'm not kidding, an entire room full of victims, and there's nothing s slow about it, there's nothing precise about it, there's nothing methodical about it. He just goes in there and starts knifing some motherfuckers. And a, a scene like that in this movie, where he, he not only knifes an entire room full of people, but that they're cops too, would go that extra little bit of distance to establish, yes, this guy really is a threat. You may think you're safe with the police, but maybe you're not. And I don't know, that plays for me. Now here we get this moment with Sheriff Meeker, Loomis, and the big gang of rednecks outside of the police station, reminding us that this isn't happening in generic small town USA. This is happening specifically in Haddonfield. These people are, they're related to uh, victims of the first two Halloween movies. You know, they've lost family members, and Loomis actually raises a good point here to Meeker. He says, look, you don't have a police department anymore. These people may be the only thing that's protecting this town at this point. And Meeker doesn't, you can tell he doesn't like that, but he doesn't really have, he doesn't have a good retort for that either. Now here again, this is this sequence with this this sheriff's deputy here in the police car. This is one of those times when, cell phones probably would have killed this movie where if this guy had known what he was up against the movie would probably end right here but instead what we see is yet another example of Michael Myers having an agenda you know he has a plan and he's got something that he's trying to do and in the process he may have actually you know this sheriff's deputy he may have saved the uh, the uh, Carruthers parents' uh, lives because he just drove off in a police car with Michael Myers in it. But Myers now he's got he's got a possible lead on tracking down Jamie, and so it made sense for him to ride off with uh, the deputy like that. And I don't know, it just it 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 plays for me. I like that. It works. It's uh you know basically everyone's instead of going to the Carruthers house, they're huddling at uh, the. Uh, at a Meeker's house, and I don't know. I just like that. Now, this is the part of the movie that really does bother me, and I can't help thinking that this is somebody expressing some kind of a bullshit fucking agenda or something like that. These these rednecks are driving around town. They're completely lawless. They end up shooting an innocent victim. And if you first off, I kind of find it hard to believe that a sheriff would allow these guys to roam around the town unsupervised and just, you know, let them be vigilantes. But even if I could believe that something like that would happen, what I cannot believe is that, you know, these guys, all of whom are using different kinds of hunting rifles and hunting shotguns and all that stuff, that they're not going to confirm the kill. You know, hunters understand that you never pull that trigger until you know what the fuck you're shooting at. You know, they know better than to do that. And honestly, I think a lot of the opposition that some people have to gun ownership, it really does come down to risk profile. People who can afford private security and gated houses and all that stuff tend to be anti-gun ownership because 
in their minds, their risk profile with private gun ownership is fucking sky high. Whereas people who, well, whatever, I'll spare you the rant. But uh, anyway, what we see here in uh, this kind of um, tender moment by the fireplace is a little bit of a realignment of Halloween's priorities. For one thing, this was never a big gore film series. You know, you don't really get a whole lot of blood and guts in, in Halloween movies. You know, these movies are all about suspense and mood and, and atmosphere and all that. But at least in the first two movies, the second one especially, you get a fair amount of boobage that's, uh, that's going on here. And in this movie, you don't, you, you get that tiny little glimpse of, uh, of a boobage. It's just blink and you miss it. It's like two or three frames tops. And, and then that's it. And you get progressively less and less and less boobage as the movie series go on. And this is pretty much the end of boobage in this movie right here. You know, you don't get, uh, any other boobage, um, in this movie and it's pretty minimal what you do get. And as the movie series goes on, like I say, you, you get less blood, less guts, less gore, less, for lack of a better way of saying it, less torture porn. And uh, basically, somebody gets they get they get poked with a knife, and uh, then they keel over and die for the most part. And I think after this movie, no boobage whatsoever. You know, none that I can think of. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you don't get any any other boobage in any of the other films. But one of the things that I kind of like about this whole sort of setup here is everybody's holing up in a Sheriff Meeker's house, and this puts. Brady, Meeker's daughter, whose name escapes me, and like Vanessa, whatever the bitch's name is, and um, and Rachel, all in the same the same house together. By circumstance, they have to be here together, and they. Catch you grope my daughter. I use that shotgun on you. <laughs> I like that. Groping my daughter, I'm gonna use that shotgun. Yeah, you know, that's just so good. I love that. But like I say, I mean, it puts these people in these uh, teenagers in the uh, same house with one another and they have every reason to have tension with one another there are, there's some ill will there there's some you know fairly decent for a horror movie there's some fairly decent drama that's that, that's going on there and i just i just kind of dig that you know they're not thrown together by arbitrary circumstance they all have reasons to be there you know uh brady has a reason to be there because that's where his um mistress is the mistress has a reason to be there because that's where she lives rachel and jamie have a reason to be there because this is uh, the sheriff's home and this is where he thinks he's he, he can make the place the most secure really the police station would probably be the most secure place but there's just so much blood and so many dead bodies there it's just not practical you know so he's got no choice but to go home Everybody involved in this has every reason to be at Sheriff Meeker's house, you know, and I just like that. It, But nevertheless, the conflicts between Brady and Rachel and uh, the Meeker daughter, they – those conflicts are real and they have a reason to exist, you know. And um, I don't know, just – I, 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 I dig that, you know, some, and when you remember the fact that this, this script, it went from outline to final script in something like, uh, two weeks or something like that because of a writer's guild strike that was about to happen in 1988. 
you know, the fact that something this good was put together this quickly under those types of circumstances. I, for one, am kind of impressed by that, you know, so <clears throat> that that works for me. So. And again, just the atmosphere that's going on here, the paranoia and the fear. Where is Michael Myers? Is he already inside the house? You know, uh, people are looking for him. They're keyed up. They're afraid. What's going on? You know, guys, I got to tell you, uh, I'm not real big on doing movie commentaries. And the reason for that is because it's... Uh, it's kind of hard to think of, or at least what I always assume is it's kind of hard to think of something to say for uh, the entire runtime of of a movie, you know, and in a lot of ways, I mean that is something that I kind of that I kind of stand up that, that I stand by. But one of the things I am a little bit proud of is the commentaries that I've done. I think I've chosen my movies well at least in terms of things that I have a lot to say about. And I don't know if I'm going to do more commentaries in the future. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But as a general thing, you know, this is, I don't know, I, so far this, is, this has actually been a lot of fun. And here again, if this was set, if this movie was set in the, in the modern day, yeah, Meeker might still be using a shortwave radio, but he could just as easily be uh, calling some of his buddies from the National Guard or the state police or just fucking wherever on his cell phone, knowing that it would be very... It would be a logistical challenge for Michael Myers to destroy every single cell phone tower in the city. Whereas knocking down the phone lines, that's a lot easier to do. I don't think this would work quite as well if you were to set it in the modern day. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen a whole lot of slasher movies that are set in the modern day. Where everyone has an iPhone and it's so much more difficult to isolate people from one another in the manner that you need to do it. In the modern day, you know. And... Some kind of interesting conflicts that are about to unfold here, you know. Uh, this is the uh, the conversation that Rachel is about to have with Meeker's daughter. In today's world is... Um, well, it could be a little bit dicey, at least from the standpoint of political correctness. And as much as I kind of resent political correctness, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm looking for ways to run afoul of it. So maybe I'll just avoid talking about the points that Meeker's daughter is about to mention. But at least before we get into that, there's this little bit of business with Rachel and the sheriff's deputy. And again, what this is really doing is reinforcing the tension and the suspense and the paranoia that's going on right now. That basically this could be the only surviving deputy in the entire town of Haddonfield. And this this guy now is the police department. You know, this is the only person that... Um, this is the only uh, deputy under Meeker that hasn't been... That hasn't been murdered yet. 
yet being the operative ward. And I don't know. I just I I kind of like the siege aspect of all of this, you know, that this is no joke. There is just this tangible, palpable fear that's going on. Loomis is back on the scene now. She's fine. Good. The sheriff's radioed for help. They'll be here soon. And Loomis is doing something that, when you think about it, is actually kind of brave. Where are you going? I mean, really, what the script needs needs to happen is to get him out of this house before Michael Myers makes his move. Okay, that's what's really going on here. But the reason that he has to leave is, <clears throat> at least what he, the reason that he gives, is that he's got to warn the the uh, Carruthers about what's happening here. You know, he's got to he's got to tip them off that hey. Um, there's a murderer on the loose. He could be coming to your house. We need to get you guys to safety. Are you looking for this? I didn't know you and Brady had anything, okay? You knew. You just didn't care. He's not married. Besides, I've got a right to do what's best for me. Don't you mean what you do best? Wise up to what men want, Rachel. Or Brady won't be the last man you lose to another woman. Have some coffee. Over in Allen Gateway, shot Ted Hollister by mistake. Well, he did. Yeah, he did. sexual politics. Is there old Ford out there? Yeah, I'm not going into that too much but the uh, thing that I like about this is that this isn't conventional uh, you know horror movie type of acting and performances there is as I say you know some the the conflicts that uh, exist between all these different characters and everything it has at least the I, I guess like the veneer of believability to it but what I think really helps with all of this, you know, is the uh, authenticity, I suppose, of of the acting that, you know, these people aren't going to be winning Oscars anytime soon, at least not for these performances, but at the same time, they really are doing a good job. And not just Danielle Harris, like I was banging away about earlier, that... Uh, but there are other members of the cast as well that are that I think are really doing a, a, a credible job with the material and scenes like that between Rachel and Meeker's daughter is a good example of what I'm talking about. And again, the suspense and the paranoia of all of this, Rachel is sitting around in the attic there, rightfully, I think, nervous, concerned about what might be happening. And this little bit of business here is a uh, good example of 
the type of scare I think that Halloween does especially well. You know, the, it's not like they... It's not like the Halloween series has a, uh, has a monopoly on this type of um, reveal scare where a character stumbles across a dead body as Meeker's daughter is about to do. And... Puts down the tray, and there we go. Here it comes. And realizes that she's been talking to the killer the entire time. This is, again, this is just an example of Michael Myers. Um, and here we go. An example of Michael Myers. Again, I don't even know how best to put this except playing with his food. He could have killed Meeker's daughter the instant she she walked into the room, but he didn't. He specifically let her find the uh, the deputy that he killed for herself, and then that's that. And I don't know why, it's just this is something that Halloween has always done really well, and it's something that I really enjoy. It's one of the reasons why this is... I mean, honestly, there are limits to the extent to which I consider myself to be a fan of horror as a, as a, a genre. I think maybe the more accurate way to put it is that I'm a fan of the Halloween series. But not so much you know, horror as a genre. I mean, I kind of like slasher films as kind of like a subgenre. But even there, you know, there are limits to it. I mean, there are only like a couple of franchises that are really on that, you know, that list of... Uh, slasher uh, series that I like, but Halloween is definitely one of them, and easily my my favorite. It's at the top of the list. And now all hell's breaking loose. We've got we've got Rachel realizing it's time to sound the alarm and launch some kind of an evacuation of the house. Except now she can't find anybody. And again, you know, this isn't maybe the, the best example of the fear and the paranoia and everything that's going on, but it's still really good. Now, there are times, and obviously I'm not going to be the first one to point this out, but there are times when characters will do objectively stupid things in slasher movies because if they don't, where's the peril? You know, where's the story? And the... Um, what we're about to see is Rachel basically refusing to abandon uh, Brady so that he can fight Michael Myers. Now, as viewers, we understand that Brady doesn't stand a chance against Michael Myers, you know. Pretty much the instant Michael Myers shows up, Brady's basically a dead man. The characters don't necessarily know that, so when he shouts at at uh, Rachel to uh, make a run for it. He's number one. He's trying to buy her time, and number two, he he basically wants to give himself a fighting chance. What he's basically trying to do is say, "Look, I'm about to fight this guy. I don't want to have to worry about your safety and well-being as I do it. You're not helping me. You're not showing me any kind of support. You're not you know you're not doing any of that shit. Whenever you disobey me and you stand there like an idiot screaming and." and all of that, you know, it's just, um, it's just ridiculous, and she refuses to run, and this is one of those times when, yes, even Halloween sometimes lives up to uh, the worst of slasher movie tropes. Still, I'll, I'll give, I'll give Brady credit for 
trying to fight, you know, knowing that he's probably going to lose, but he's still, he's still trying his best. And if nothing else, at least he's not Buster Rhymes doing Kung Fu and somehow surviving a fight with Michael Myers three separate fucking times. So here we go. <clears throat> Now, a little bit of a production trivia here for those of you who are curious about this type of thing. Uh, basically, the original pitch for this script was going to be that it was actually Sheriff Meeker who was duking it out with Michael Myers downstairs. Somehow, in the middle of the fight, a fire broke out. I'm guessing it would be that one of them knocked the uh, candle that uh, Meeker's daughter just lit. One of them knocked the uh, candle off its stand, and then, of course, uh, the entire house, because it's a horror movie, is a tinderbox, instantly goes up in flames, and so Rachel and Jamie have no real option except to attempt to escape the house through the attic. Number one, because Michael Myers is downstairs, but number two, there's a fire downstairs as well, and obviously it's going to be working its way up. And for budget reasons that scene ended up having to get jettisoned you know or at least that concept ended up having having to get jettisoned and so instead the fight was uh, transferred over to brady who of course loses the fight and there is no fire to escape from but you know the reality is i don't think you actually need the kind of the the double peril of this masked maniacal murderer that's looking around downstairs combined with uh, this raging inferno that's engulfing the house as well. I think it's enough that the girls have to escape from Michael Myers. It just seems a little bit, almost, it's almost kind of like a try-hard thing to do that, you know, wow, you're really trying to amp up the peril. But I think what that kind of overlooks is the, is the fact that Michael Myers is a big enough threat all by himself. You don't need to add anything else to it. And I think that if you try, you run the risk of making him look like an inadequate threat in and of himself, you know? Because if the fact that Michael Myers is downstairs if the, and basically blocking your only avenue of escape, if that's not enough to make you uh, attempt an escape through the attic, then why would a fire somehow be the magic answer? You know, if you're willing to, to try walking around Michael, Michael Myers to go out the front door, why wouldn't you attempt to walk around a fire or through a fire to go, to go out the front door? So to me, I think that sometimes the, the changes and tweaks that have, to, that have to be made to a script in order for uh, the budget to be protected, I, I sometimes think that there are, there are times when that actually results in a better product. Certainly that is the case here, I believe. And... You know, watching this as a nine-year-old, you got two girls hanging off the side of a house. You know, one of them's hanging off what looks like an electrical cable. The other one's hanging off of a of a gutter by her finger. Well, she was hanging off of a gutter until she fell. But one of them's hanging off a hanging off a gutter by her fingernails, and 
I don't know why, but that just drove me nuts when I was a kid watching this. It's like, oh my God, you know, uh, how are they going to get out of this? This is because all Michael Myers has to do is just pull Jamie back up and introduce her to the business end of his knife. And then, well, that's that. One of the things I do kind of like about this, though, is that Jamie does show a little bit more poise, I guess, in the face of danger that... Rachel at least seems to be down. Oh, this is one of those moments, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this is definitely one of those vivid memories. You got Rachel. She's running down the street through people's yards. She makes her way to the sidewalk. Oop, there she goes. She she falls down because it's a horror movie and they fall down. But I don't know why. That's just one of those moments of seeing this for the first time uh, on TV when I was nine. That just really stood out. You know, wow, she ate it on the sidewalk, you know. I don't know why. That just... Uh, I just like that. It's good. But she, like I say, she does show a little bit more. Uh, I don't even know what to call it, but uh, ingenuity or awareness, wisdom, call it whatever you want. But she's basically a little bit more on top of things that she realizes that Rachel is, at least for the moment, down and out. And so rather than stay by Rachel's side in the face of this uh, serial killer that's standing right beside her. She decides, you know what, look, maybe she's alive, maybe she's not, but if I don't get out of here, like now-ish, I'm gonna die. So, and so she makes a run for it. And that's a uh, presence of mind that Rachel was not prepared to demonstrate when Brady demanded that she make a run for it, so... Uh, does that say something about Rachel? Or not Rachel, does that say something about Jamie? This is actually kind of an interesting little bit of business here too. You've got Loomis and you've got Jamie and they're uh, looking for a place to hide inside the school. Why he would make a run for the school, I don't know. Because you'd think they'd have to run, they'd have to go, oh yeah, and there's, there's this bit here where uh, Michael Myers is wearing a white mask and that is a very bothersome element for some people. I mean, it's obviously a production mistake. Somebody ordered the wrong mask. It's accidentally got used in the movie. There wasn't enough time to do a reshoot. I mean, seriously, people, what's the big deal? But anyway, there is a moment here, or I, we've just talked past, or I've just talked past it, but um, there's a moment where uh, Jamie basically asks Loomis, you know, are we going to be safe? And he says yes, but he says it with this tone of voice that says, He's saying yes to be comforting to her. He doesn't actually believe that. And, I don't know. I mean, what a thing. I mean, imagine having to lie to a child in a, in a situation like that. You know, telling her that everything's going to be okay when you have absolutely, positively no reason whatsoever to believe that everything's going to be okay. Because literally all of her other protectors are either very far away from her in that moment or they're dead. You know, but what I like about this is here again, we've got Michael Myers playing with his food. He had the drop. <clears throat> he had the drop on uh, Jamie just a second ago when he threw Loomis through a uh, through that doorway. And he didn't instantly go in for the kill. He basically let her just kind of simmer, I guess, and in her own panic, just kind of boil away in her own fear, and wondering, 
he, you know, he found he found a place to hide temporarily, and all that just so he could come back out and scare the piss out of Jamie again. I'm, I don't know. That's just—it's a level of effort that you rarely or never, for that matter, see uh, Michael Myers use with his male victims. Now, we're getting into a part of the movie now, The Big Escape, where something's about to happen, and this either works for you or it doesn't. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, it doesn't really work for me, but it's like, at the same time, so much else about this movie is just so good that it, it's almost, it, it almost doesn't make sense to harp too much about this, but basically you've got this truck full of uh, arm-to-the-teeth hicks, really, zooming down the road, and after they pass by the cops, it's revealed that Michael Myers is riding on the underside of the truck. He climbs up to the top, and number one, he takes everybody out without anybody really noticing. Everybody in the back of the truck, he takes them all out without anybody really noticing. And then, as he's doing all of that, the driver of the truck doesn't notice. Rachel doesn't notice. Jay Nobody notices what's going on less than than a foot away from them. And so, you've... I think the, uh, the objective of the scriptwriter at this point is basically to allow Rachel and Jamie to have more of a individual sort of private confrontation with Michael Myers and there has to be some kind of way of doing that this was in the short span of time that there was to write this script this was just the best idea that anybody had but I don't know like I say it just doesn't work for me another thing that and again I've talked past it but one of the things that doesn't work for me is firing off a gun to get a, a police officer's attention I mean they're stupid and then there's firing off a gun to get a police officer's attention. I mean, odds are he's going to know that you don't, that you're just trying to get his attention, that you don't actually mean any, any harm. But do you really want to take that chance? I mean, these guys are already keyed up as it is, and maybe they'll decide to return fire. You, know? you don't know. So, and here we go. Myers comes up from underneath. And the bloodbath resumes, and nobody notices. And the other thing is, I mean, did the... One of the things that the script just doesn't really answer, or the movie doesn't really answer, is, you know, there was this whole team of hicks that, uh, that zoomed out of, the, uh, out of the bar in a pickup trucks with their shotguns and their rifles and all that stuff. And... What happened to that, to, to those other, to those trucks full of other people? I mean, what happened to those people, you know? But this is one of the most brutal kills that we, that I think we've ever seen Michael Myers do, is he basically just tears somebody's head part of the way off his shoulders, and then that's that. Rachel has no choice but to take over driving the pickup, and, you know, tosses the guy out, out the door, and... It's like, I, I get it, you know, I mean, uh, you, you have to do what you have to do to stay alive, but man, what a way to go.
And again, she's showing a lot of presence of mind here, Rachel is, by slamming on the brakes, knowing that Michael Myers is going to get tossed out of the road. And she realizes, look, it's now or never. I mean, we've tried everything to take this guy out, and nothing's been working. So maybe what we need to do is uh, introduce him to the business end of uh, this, uh, this uh, pickup truck and uh, just run him over. And it's one of those things that, you know, he, again, there's so much about Michael Myers that's intentionally left open to interpretation. He's as human as you want him to be, or he's as paranormal as you want him to be. But you got to think, no matter how human you think he is or how paranormal you think he is, he still has certain limitations. And you got to wonder, what would happen if you just parked the, the uh, pickup? Just like right on top of him, like one of the wheels just like right on top of his chest. And that's a pretty, I would think that's a pretty effective way of pinning him down. And what you can do after that, well, who knows. But that would at least be a good way of pinning him down. Now here again, we've got a moment that either works for you or it doesn't. You know, Jamie holding uh, Michael Myers' hand and... Basically, this is meant to set something up for the very end of this movie. And this is... In its place, I don't actually mind that this is in the movie, but at the same time, we do need to acknowledge that the... There's not a kid in the world that would do what, what Jamie just did. You know, all this horrifying stuff that she survived on this particular night, and now all of a sudden she's gonna she's going to choose that moment to try to make some kind of physical contact with Michael. I just, I don't buy it, you know, but again, it's basically working towards something uh, that's going to happen at the very end of this movie. And so I go with it, but it's like at the same time, we need to acknowledge there, there's very little in terms of credibility that's going on in, 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 in uh, Jamie holding uh, Michael Myers' hand like that. But one of the things I do kind of like is that Michael Myers was shot so fucking many times that I can understand how anybody who watched that happen, you know, the, the police officers that were there and the hicks and all that stuff, I can completely understand how they would have thought, okay, well, that's the end of him. And another thing that really works for me is actually Loomis right here. You know, his his voice is pretty calm. You know, and his dialogue is still a little bit foreboding, but his delivery, you know, his line readings and all that, they're, uh, they give the impression that this is a man who believes he has now finally vanquished his enemy. And that lasts right up until this moment where we see this point of view shot that, at least when I was a kid, and I, you know, I understood that this was, you know, intended to be, it was shot ambiguously like this, this way on purpose, this point of view shot of somebody as they make their way down the hall. And we're supposed to at first think that this is Michael Myers. Oops, he's alive after all. And if you're a seasoned Halloween fan, the instant the mask comes down over the camera, 
you're definitely supposed to believe this is Michael Myers and that this is kind of like a takeoff of what happened at the beginning of the original Halloween movie. Not that I caught that the first time I saw this movie when I was nine. But I did at least realize that we were supposed to think this was Michael Myers. And so, yep, here it is. And we see Jamie covered in blood at the top of the stairs. And no, she was the one that tried to uh, uh, kill her foster mother. Now, an important uh, bit of business here that we need to acknowledge is that Halloween 5, if I... It's been forever since I've seen it, but my memory is that Halloween 5 establishes that uh, Mrs. Carruthers actually survived. She got stabbed, but she survived. Uh, that, you know, Jamie isn't actually a murderer. She's just an attempted murderer. And then again, you know, the, the fifth movie, you know, gets into that, you know, a little bit more. What exactly was it that happened? But the narrative intent, at least in this movie, was clearly that... Jamie in, in some fashion or another is now the bad guy and I hadn't seen Halloween 5 obviously when I saw Halloween 4 when I was 9 for that first time so the uh, <laughs> I didn't know where the story was going but I thought you know yeah that that's a really shocking ending, you know, that's a, that's this really big cliffhanger and all that, but I just kind of had problems with it, that, wow, this protagonist, this, uh, this character, Jamie, that we've been, uh, worrying about and cheering for through this whole movie, whoops, nope, turned out that in a weird kind of way, in the end, Michael Myers really did get her, and so I understand where people are coming from when they say, Oh yeah, and it says right here, Prop Master is a is a Bucky. You see the name Bucky on a bunch of different things in this movie. And I've always always been too lazy to check, but I've wondered if this is the same Bucky that that was a, a Prop Master or something like that on uh, Smallville. So I don't know. Maybe I'll check that at some point. But anyway, so this protagonist that we've been cheering for this whole time and we're happy to see survive. Uh, nope, in a weird kind of way, Michael Myers got her after all, and. That bothered me when I was a kid. Not enough to ruin the entire movie for me, but it did. It did kind of. It, it kind of bugged me. Now, today, as an adult, I sit here and I watch that and I think, man, that's a really good ending. You know, it's it's shocking and it's unpredictable. And I think that if I'd been an adult Halloween fan back in 1988 when this movie came out and I was seeing it in theaters, I think I really would have enjoyed. Uh, that ending, you know, because it really was shocking and it was so unpredictable and and all that. But it's, you know, like I say, just seeing it as an adult, it's just, or rather seeing it as a, as a kid for the first time when I was nine in uh, 1989 on TV, it was um, not a completely welcome development. So, but overall, I mean, I just, I, I really enjoy this movie. You know, to me, the Halloween canon begins and ends with the first Halloween movie. And so all I really want from any of the sequels is is for it to be a worthy sequel. It's probably never going to be canon for me. And that includes Halloween 2, by the way. It's never going to be canon for me. But, you know, does it live up to the thrills and the, the atmosphere and the suspense and the paranoia and all that of of the first one. You know, I'm not asking for it to be as good. I just want it to have kind of a similar tone. 
And as a general thing, I think this movie does have a similar tone. To me, this is a worthy follow-up to the original Halloween. It's a lot worthier, I would say, than Halloween 2 and 3. <clears throat> and God knows some of the stuff that came later. Of the sequels, this is probably uh, the one that, that, I, that I enjoyed the most. I mean, honestly, it, it, it's kind of a toss-up in a lot of ways, you know, between... Halloween 4 and Halloween 2018, you know, which of those is all around better for me, but I don't know, it's just, to me, this is just a really enjoyable movie, and I can't imagine not spinning this for Halloween every year as part of, or maybe not necessarily, like, definitely this one, but, you know, if I feel like watching a Halloween movie that's not the original, well, don't be too surprised if it's if it's Halloween 4. I just think this is a really well-done movie. And as it turns out, I think that fan consensus on this is, well, it's generally in agreement with me, you know? So whatever you think that's worth, I don't know. So, But there you go, Halloween 4. So there's my commentary. So I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week or next time or whenever. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, 
specified that you're sending Magnus some monetary love and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.